Well, good morning, everybody. So we are officially roughly one week into the Christmas season, and I'm curious, kind of by way of a show of hands, uh, how many of you are already like, you know what, uh, it feels busy? Feels a little frantic, the schedule's filling up, things are getting kind of underway. You realize there's gonna be a lot of activities, events, shopping, all of it's in there, I saw the hands. Uh, here is what I'm hoping to do throughout the Advent season for us as a church on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm hoping that what this is, is an anchor point. Right? During this time of year, it is so easy to be pulled in a hundred different directions and to have all these different priorities. And so really with this time of year, I want us to just slow down when we come together and just anchor into the fact that what is really in play here more than anything else is this incredible story about how God so loved the world, he came into the world to bring to the world something the world cannot generate in and of itself. That, I believe, is the essence of the Advent season, and that is what we want to protect and enjoy and cultivate here this morning and throughout all the Sundays of Advent. You may not realize, maybe some are new to this, but Advent simply means coming or arrival. And we are celebrating the arrival of God into our lives and into our world. And so right now I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to celebrate kind of this first Sunday of Advent with some good recollection on some core truths of the Scripture. And uh, I hope from that it will give us more courage and encouragement and strength for what we need to do. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that we can take these Sundays, and instead of coming in with all the hype of the holidays, we can have this sense of grounding, just a reflection on you, a recollection of your kindness and your grace toward us. I pray that as there's many things going on, and I know at this time of year, for some people there's great happiness, for others there's, gr there's grief, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's frustrations, maybe there's broken relationships or family dynamics or kind of askew. There's all sorts of things. And I pray that you will be again kind of the peacemaker for us in all of that. And that we will trust you, look to you, seek you in all that we do. So help us to take a story that is probably too familiar at times and bring newness and freshness into our hearts and lives. So Jesus, we look to you, we thank you, we love you, and we appeal to you now in your good and kind name. Amen. So, the Bible, I have to break it to you, this book is not really a book. Not in the truest sense. In fact, if anything, it's a bit of a library. And this library is made up of 66 different chunks of literature. But even there, I don't think it captures it. I don't think it's as simple as to say, okay, so it's one book, or it's seven dispensations, or it's three ages, or it's two testaments, and all this. I, I think what we need to do with this library that is before us is to realize that at the core of all of that is a story. And not a make-believe story, not a fictitious story, not like some kind of mystical story, but rather a very concrete story about how God wants to reestablish for us that which was lost. And so it's a story of aggression. It's a story of brokenness. It's a story of friction. But it's also a story of grace and selflessness and sacrifice. And as I was just saying a minute ago, how God so desperately wanted reconnection, he comes into the world himself and through self-sacrifice, Sacrifice reestablishes the connection that was lost. That is the entire story. 
And as we do the season of Advent, what I love about this is we kind of zero in on some of the hallmarks of that story or choice words that capture the flow of what God is accomplishing. Throughout the season of Advent, we have these key words like joy or hope or love. And today we have the word peace. And see, peace is a popular one this time of year. You're going to see it on wrapping paper. You're going to see it on big kiosks at the mall. You're going to hear it in songs. So we love the concept of peace in the holiday season. But here's the thing I also realize. In general, throughout the world, this is a word that is used heavily, and it's well-worn, but it has some baggage attached to it that I think undermines what the real meaning of peace is all about. In fact, if anything, I'd say that within our world context, we sometimes take this word and we tether it to things that don't really capture the word peace at all. In fact, if anything, it kind of uh, contaminates the essence of its meaning. For example, we'll take this word and attach it to firearms. We'll attach it to warheads. We'll attach it to soldiers deployed on battlefields. We love to use peace in this kind of context. In fact, I remember as a kid, I was a kid of the Reagan era. And I remember every night I would go to bed and I would pray that the Soviets and the United States would not engage in a nuclear war. And the reason for that is because I was told all the time that we needed to have the sense of mutually assured destruction to ensure the peace. We needed an arms race and a military buildup, and there needed to be this perpetual fear that we could annihilate you and you could annihilate us. Welcome to Peace 101, you know? And so as a kid, I remember just thinking like, oh, so peace isn't really peace. Peace is about this very fragile truce that's really about a threat toward one another, and we call that good. And so that's what I mean, but it's been, by it's been a contaminated type word. Now, if I'm more honest about my own personality and my own kind of tastes in life, I don't know if I always love peace. I think I more enjoy conflict at times, right? Like you think about our sports, what we love about football is the hard hit, that drive into the ground. Hockey, it's for the fights, man. I love hockey, but boy, I love that chuck into the, into the glass, that fight that breaks out. Love that stuff. Nobody's going to have this giant following around curling for this very reason, right? Nobody's going to be like, oh my goodness, curling's so cool because this one dude really slowly slides a stone. And then these other dudes, they are this real aggression of the sport. They're sweeping. And then it glides to a halt, right? There's like, there's no, like, because there's no, like, like, turmoil there. There's no strength. There's no power. There's no velocity. There's, there's no kind of absence of peace. It's the most peaceful thing in the world. Or our movies, right? We don't love peace movies. We love aggression movies. Like, I'm a big fan of Star Wars. Love it. Can you imagine how lame Star Wars would be? Here's Luke in his X-Wing. He's coming at the Death Star. He's getting ready to bring the assault. And then all of a sudden, Vader gets on the line. Luke, it's your dad. Let's sit down and talk. And Luke's like, yeah, good idea, man. Flies into the Death Star. They sit down and talk. They have, like, this whole conversation. They hug. They embrace. And the Empire is at peace again. We'd be like, that's a lame movie, man. Blow up the Death Star. Right? So we love that stuff. First-person shooter games. That's the hot commodity, man. That's what we love to play. Xbox has never thought, like, we should come up with, like, a first-person ambassador game where you just walk around and you try to make peace with all the nations and it's be super rad and you can talk on your headsets about figuring out how to make it work right. Like, that's not the way we roll, man. We want the, the, the thug in the show to get punched in the face. We want the mean girl to get cut down to sides. We want the villain to be killed at the end. That's what we crave. That's what we want. That's what our heart kind of longs for. And so while we talk about peace, 
there is this kind of drift toward conflict. And I think the reason for that, when you kind of analyze the story, is that you realize that while we were not made for that, we quickly moved into that. Now, I want to be clear. The way we were made was actually, in fact, for peace. We were designed for unity and and, and a sense of unification and community. That's like Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, what I love about Genesis 1 is it actually starts on a grand scale of God bringing unity out of chaos. That's the whole idea of creation. So everything is kind of formless and void, and then he's speaking into it, and he's honing and crafting and simplifying and bringing it down to this thing that can be inhabited. And that has unity in creation. And then you get to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, God's like, I will make a man who is my image bearer. And there's this unity between God and the man. And then he says, I'm going to make a woman from the man. And there is to be unity between the husband and the wife. And it says there that they were naked and unashamed. So there was nothing hindering their relationship. There was nothing secretive. There was nothing broken. There was just this perfect sense of community. God to people, people to one another, people to the creation itself. It was all harmonious. It was all kind of the symbiotic relationship. But then you get to Genesis 3. Bum, 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 bum. And in that space, you see a radical breakdown. Right? And, and through a series of decisions and a series of events, what you have at the core of Genesis 3 is division and destruction. Complete relational breakdown. And so the man and the woman, they cross a line that God had drawn for them for their good, for their peace. They decide, no, we're going to do our own thing, our own way. They kind of make up the rules as they want to go. And so from this, they realize like, whoa, now we feel shame. Now we feel exposed. Now we feel a sense of division where there was once a sense of peace, and so they hide. And then God comes into the space looking to, again, find his creation and interact with them, but he can't find them, so he calls out. He's like, where are you? And the man replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so God said to him, who said that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then the man said, well, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, well, he's the one that deceived me, and so I ate. And so where there had just been unity, there had just been peace, now you see that they're afraid, and they're hiding, and they're exposed. You see, but then the man, he keeps saying, I, I, I. So he goes from other-focused to self-focused. And then in this, it's just a series of blaming. God, it's you, it's her, it's the serpent. Everybody's looking out for themselves. So where there had been a sense of, of, of this, like, community, now it is friction, and it's just dividing up. And everybody's watching their own back. Everybody's looking out for their own interests. And so from this, you see God begin to unpack the realities of the division. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's a number of things happening here, but what you see at the core is now there's going to be conflict between the woman and the serpent, whatever that means, her offspring, what that fully means, we're not fully sure, except for the fact that we also know that it hints toward the final one that comes and deals with the damage of Eden, which is Jesus, and there's always going to be friction between Jesus and his enemy, but Jesus will undo what the enemy has done, which is ultimately division in the world. But there's conflict until then. And then to the woman, 
He says, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and then your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, there's a couple of things there that I think are important. Sometimes we read this and we go, oh, there's going to be pain in the birthing of a child, but kind of in the Hebrew language, this equally means there's going to be pain in the rearing of a child. And I've talked to many moms over the years that would say, I would rather do the birthing thing than do the raising thing sometimes. Because the raising thing is what? It's conflict many times. Because it's a person that has autonomy raising another person that grows in autonomy. And in those relationships, you have friction and division. And then you add to it, it says, she's going to have desire for her husband, and he's going to rule over her. This is another cycle of division. She'll want to control, and he'll want to control. So the home dynamic is going to have both challenge with children and challenge within marriage. And then you get to the man. And God says, well, because you've done this, cursed is the ground because of you. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work this thing. And so now his work life is going to be division. He brings that into the home life, which is division. He's going to bring the pressure to bear on that. It's going to be the pressure to bear on him. They're all going to bring pressure to bear on one another. And what you have at the end of Genesis 3 is nothing but discord. In Genesis 2, there was peace. Now by Genesis 3, it's nothing but the absence of peace in every foundational relationship within society, within the world, and within our spiritual condition. Because the way it ends is God says, now I'm banishing you from Eden. I'm banishing you from access to the tree of life, and now there's going to be this flaming sword that goes back and forth and keeps you from being able to access that. See, the tree of life is symbolic in many ways in Genesis it symbolizes this access, not simply to life, but access to peace and harmony, grounding and purpose. Uh, it's why I firmly believe that when you get to the Gospel of John, for example, and you see Jesus, he's repeatedly linked to life. Over 50 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about abundant life, true life, full life. I will give you a life that is unshakable in any conceivable way. In other words, Jesus becomes the tree that was lost. And when we have access to him, we have access to life again. That's why we say that life is better with Jesus as a church. It's because Jesus repeatedly pushed that issue. I am the source of life. Just as life was lost in Eden, it can be restored in me. Sadly, though, it would take a long time to get to that part of the story. And here we're only in Genesis 3. When you roll into Genesis 4, you see the division escalates. So there's Cain and Abel. One brother kills another brother. By the end of that, there's a guy named Lamech, and he just kills a stranger for attacking him. And then in chapter 5, you start to see kind of the escalation of the growth of the population of humanity. And then by Genesis 6, God's like, man, all they are is violent all the time. They are so far from a world of peace. All they want and crave is a world of conflict. And so God then purges that space, minus Noah and his family. From that, the ark parks. And it says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he offered a burnt offering to the Lord on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart are evil even from his youth. He's like, that's still the problem, but I'm not going to do this again. Never, never will I again strike everything down, every living creature, as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, these things shall not cease. 
And then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It sounds just like the way it started off in the positive. Maybe there's peace anew in this reboot of Eden, right? No, verse 2. But the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast and bird and bug and fish. In other words, for all of that purging, peace did not spring up on the other side. There would still be conflict, there would still be division, there would still be war. And when you read through the rest of the Old Testament, that's all it is, right? It's nothing but friction, nothing but destruction, nothing but division. And so we can speak of peace, we can dream of peace, but our nature is just humans tends to want to sabotage this thing. For all of our love of it, we really just don't pursue it, not really. And I think at its core, it's because of something I know about myself. Troublemaking is just easier and more fun. It just is. Looking out for myself is just easier and more fun. Peacemaking, though, man, that's, that's hard, right? We can barely manage peace in our own lives, right? Like in our emotions, in our problems, in our thoughts, uh, in our homes, on the job. How many do a great job in managing peace on the 405 when it's crazy? Like, we struggle with these things. Peace is hard to do, right? And so for all of the talks about it, the awards given to it, the treaties and negotiations, I find it to be relatively impossible in this world. And so like I said, the Old Testament is kind of like a journey in this truth, where it's attack and retaliation, unity dissolves into division, external, internal turmoil is always there, so it is a testament of conflict. Which is then why I think when you read it, you see that there are these repeated outcroppings of people that kind of emerge, and they're like, oh, but to have peace. Oh, to see peace arrive into the world. Oh, to see one who could change everything. And so there is this longing that God would come and do what they could not do for themselves, that God would bring forth in the lives that which their lives are not equipped to generate in their own strength. And so there's this hunger and thirst and craving for this thing called peace, like a legitimate type, not frail and fragile and human-oriented. Perhaps this is why then we see in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, this promise that's going to come. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, you may not realize that, but that's almost an oxymoron right there for their world. Because princes were born to be kings, and kings were bred to go to war. So the idea that you would have a prince that would actually be designed for peace would be like, well, no, that's not what princes and kings do. Well, this one will. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will do this to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so I love this for three basic reasons. First of all, there's a promise that peace now has its champion. There's never been a champion of peace up to this point in the Bible. The second promise you see here is that God is zealous to accomplish this task. So he's not like, hey, peace would be nice if we have extra time for it. It's not like, no, God's like, my passion is to reunify my people, my creation. And I'm going to do this in my own personal way because he himself will come and do it for us. 
He will come and give us what we can't generate in and of ourselves. In fact, what I love about the story is that he says, I'm going to take the task on my own shoulders. And I'm going to come and dwell among them. And, and, and so much so, I'm going to introduce myself into the conflict so that I might infuse peace into their hearts and lives. Later, Isaiah speaks to this. He says, all of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, we could speculate about what moment, scene, event Isaiah's maybe getting at there. My personal opinion, it's just my opinion, Bible there, Matt here, we got that clear, Bible there, Matt here. Um, I really believe the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, which is kind of its cousin, are that time where God comes and teaches peace. Right? When you expose yourself to those messages of Jesus, they are so dense, so dense with the tools of peace. Like, here's how you get peace done in the world. Here's how you are different than the world. The world gets work done this way. We do it upside down and backwards. And I really believe at the core of the Sermon on the Mount, it is this architecture and archetype for how we live out the role of displaying the peace of God in the world. And Jesus comes to teach that. Jesus comes to take up life in us so we can accomplish that and do that. It's not just this nice little set of verses that we memorize and put on plaques and think it's cute and stitch on pillows and call it happy. But it's this, this marching order for what we want to accomplish. That's the way that God taught peace to us. And then he takes up residence in us so that we might have peace in him. But in the storyline, we're still in the Old Testament. They're looking forward to this season that's about to come. And when we cross this arbitrary line from the Hebrew Testament to the Christian Testament, we enter into the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and the scene unfolds. It says, In the same region where the shepherds were out in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, as would I. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For under you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, the Lord. And this will be the sign of the great King come to earth. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Right? So the opposite of power, the opposite of strength. This doesn't seem like any type of king you should expect, but he is the one. And then with this, suddenly there was this multitude of heavenly hosts that arrived, and they were praising God, and they were saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. See, what is so great about this is that we see heaven's heir arrive. And he arrives not to subdivide and conquer and crush and kill and purge, now, he comes to bring peace on earth, and he doesn't do it by subduing enemies or overthrowing governments, organizing boycotts, shaming critics, backing politicians, or winning arguments. It just doesn't use those tools or metrics. Instead, he decides to give up of himself to gain more. He decides to win people over versus simply win. He wants to inspire sacrifice, and he says, here's how serious I take it. I will come, I will give, I will die for them. I will put myself in their hands of hatred, and in their hatred, I will say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is peace. 
In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, it says, For in him, and that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is such a weird thing. Nobody would think the cross is an instrument of peace. It's an instrument of torture, death, dismemberment. It's meant to say, you know what? You are a villain of the peace of Rome. And it's like, no, no, no. Under this thing of Rome, I will make true peace. Man, I, I, that, that gets me going. That floats my boat right there. Because again, it's not just a shallow, kind of perpetual, incomplete uh, sense of peace. It's true peace. And I love this in part because throughout the Old Testament, there was peace offerings, right? They would always come and make another peace offering. Every year, another peace offering. All the time, there was a peace offering. And now Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to do this once for all time. A true offering of peace. Bringing peace to us, bringing peace for us. And bringing peace in us. Jesus says, I pe- this peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. From this he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, this is valuable because, again, in their world, much like our world, they had this understanding of what it took to have peace. In their world, it was called Pax Romana. It was peace at the end of the Roman sword. And in our world, we have it too. It's peace by way of laws, judges, courts, prisons. Like, we establish peace in our world by force, by threat in some ways, just like they did. But then Jesus is kind of coming into this thing, like, oh, I'm going to give you something different. It's going to be internal. It's going to be transcendent. It's going to be consistent. I'm going to give you a peace that the world cannot provide, and in that it is a peace that the world cannot take away. It's not a peace that's reliant on the conditions. It's a peace that is found in pursuing Him. But I think to understand this peace, to sense it, we need to go to the source of it in our daily lives. And Paul speaks to this in Philippians 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's kind of like the first step. I think this is kind of a formula to me in Philippians 4. But that first step is, you know what? When you're tempted, as I am tempted, to complain, to worry, to fret, to be angry, uh, he says instead rejoice. Not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. So he doubles down, like, hey, make sure you really do this. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is valuable because, again, he gives us a place to focus our attention. It is so easy to focus on problems. He says, hey, focus on God, who is the solution. You could worry all you want, but it doesn't get you anywhere in life. Instead, pray about everything that you tend to worry about. But in this, he says, be thankful. Maintain thankfulness as you're letting God know what you need. And from this, God will answer all of your prayers and your wildest dreams. Is that what he says? No. I wish that was the case. But he does say, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So again, it may not be the answer you want, but he will give you the peace you need. He will generate that in you. But then he says, I want you to double down on how you accomplish this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent or anything that's worthy of praise, man, think about those things. Anchor yourself in those thoughts. He says, and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Here's what I love about this. Earlier he talks about uh, that, that the peace of God will guard you. And now he talks about the God of peace will be with you. See, this whole thing in Philippians 4, it has this, again, symbiotic relationship where the more you're leaning into these things, the more you sense the peace of God. And as you sense the peace of God, it anchors your heart, it anchors your mind. You lean into that even more. And then from that, the presence of God steps into your world and gives peace. So you get both the God of peace and the peace of God. That is what Jesus came to do. Now, again, we choose a lot of substitutes in life for peace. And most of those substitutes just do not work. They just don't work, whether it be stuff or money or excursions or relationships, right? Or some kind of security measure, whatever it is. It really just doesn't tend to generate peace in our lives. The only thing that really will do it and is not bound by conditions is the presence of God and the peace of God placed into our soul. And yet I believe that the way we most experience then this peace is not simply to say, God, fill me with your peace. God of peace, be with me. But rather it's like he does that and he says, all right, now that you're experiencing that, I want to really take it up a notch and I want you to export that. I want you to express the peace that I have pressed and placed into you. Because I believe that we're not simply meant to sense it, we're meant to share it. James chapter three says, the wisdom from above is first of all pure but it's also peace-loving and gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and for certainly the fruit of good deeds. It says, ah, man, this shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. See, this is what the world needs more of. People that say, you know what, I want to have that wisdom. I want to be a curator of peace. Because you know what, here's what we all know. There are plenty of conflict creators in the world. Plenty. It's an industry, right? Politicians, they love conflict. They need conflict to get the votes. The pundits of the politicians, they make tons of money off of creating conflict. You want to enjoy conflict, here's what I'll have you do today. Go home, Go online, go on Facebook, and go to the Duval discussion page. <clears throat> and you're like, curators of conflict. Wow, right? Like, it's there, man. Just there. Easy to do. Conflict is easy. Peace, that's hard. That's hard. But that's what we're called to do. And I think it starts by saying, I need to go to the God of peace so that I will have the peace of God so that with that then relationship, I can take this peace of God into the world that desperately needs to sense the peace of God because we are invited to do something different. I, I said that I hope that every day of Advent is like an anchoring point, but part of that is an anchoring point to launch us back out into the world to be different, to be difference makers in the space that we inhabit, to be peace curators. Because we know the God of peace, we sense the peace of God, and therefore we're meant to be ambassadors of the God who calls us to be peacemakers. Because Jesus said it this way, and I close with this. He says, God blesses, God blesses those who create peace, for they will be called children of God. I'll, I'll tell you why this is so critical. The, the world needs to see that real thing. That real difference. Not just like, hey, I'm religious. Hey, I go to church. Hey, I read my Bible. Hey, I have these certain kind of family value morals. Now, the world needs to see people where they go, man, you, you're bringing something to the table that we can't manufacture. You're displaying a child of goddessness, if that's a word that I just made up. Thank you, Shakespeare. Um, but it's like, 
That's what they're longing to see. And if we do that, it's not like a bummer for us. What it says is God blesses those who take that on, who say, I want to be an ambassador of peace. Let's go ahead and pray together. Maybe right now you're online with us or you're in the room with us here and you go, man, I don't know if I have that peace in my life. And there may be more than one reason for that. Maybe you go, I follow Jesus, but I'm struggling to feel peace. Others, you go, I don't follow Jesus and I need that kind of peace. I'm first talking to those who say, you know, I don't follow Jesus, but I need that kind of peace and I want to follow Jesus today. If that is where you are at, you find it in your heart or your soul, this anxious want to become a Christian today, for you that is a prayer way where you say, Jesus, forgive me for my offenses, forgive me for my sin, forgive me for my lack of being a peacemaker. And, and step into my world, forgive me, bring new life to me, because Jesus, you promised life, life abundant, that life is always better with you, and I make others' lives better because of you and me. Like, if that's your prayer today, he hears you, forgives you, brings you into the family, and we would love to know that you made that your prayer. I'll be out at the door afterward. Just stop, grab me, let me know, or go on our app, click the tile. I decided to follow Jesus today. Let us know you did that. Now, for those of us who may be feeling pressure, struggle, strain, grief, anxiety, welcome to the, the team. I, I know that feeling, right? I do. And all the more means we press in. We seek God out. We ask him to step into our world and be the God of peace who creates the peace of God in us. Jesus, help us. Bring peace into our lives where there is brokenness, division, whether it be family, friends, work, internal doubt, struggle, shame, whatever it is, remove that. We thank you that you are the God of grace. We can never earn. We can never maintain. It's only by your favor, only by your faithfulness. Even our faith is really incomplete. It's your faithfulness to us that is the key. And so we look to your faithfulness. We long for a sense of your love, and we certainly crave your peace. Help us not only to sense that, but then to express that. Help us to be what you want us to be in your good name. Amen.